Good evening, everybody. Good evening. We're not going to start quite yet. We're going to start in five minutes. Um, but I want to do something just a, a little bit different tonight. I've heard you guys have gotten a lot of content over the last couple of weeks, um, but not had a lot of opportunity for questions and answer and discussion. So uh, I would like to do questions. I, I like working that way. So we're going to start out uh, after a few things this evening by I'm just going to open the floor and let you guys ask questions on anything you've been taught so far or anything you want to talk about before we get into my subject of the evening, which is the Millennial Kingdom. Um, you're, you're welcome when we do Q&A to raise your hand and ask a question. You don't even have to raise your hand. I don't care. This isn't elementary school. But you can ask me a question. If you would rather not ask a question in front of everybody, uh, we've got cards all along the rows here. And uh, just take any time in the next five minutes. If you have a question that's been burning on your mind, if you will just jot down that question and then bring it up here to the front. I, I would love to have those questions and I can answer them for you as we go through tonight. So write down your questions and we'll start in about five minutes. Who's the band? You too. Anybody know the song and album? Joshua Tree. Still haven't found what I'm looking for. Wanted to start with that because, first of all, I love you too. Big fan of Bono. Um, love them because of their lyrics. A uh, lot of Christian themes that go deep in their songs. Uh, but I like that song in particular for a night on eschatology because it gives us some perspective. Uh, I hear that over the last couple of weeks, you guys have been going into a lot of depth on details of eschatology and end times, a lot of information about the rapture and the tribulation, uh, entering into debates and discussions that have been consuming theologians for 2,000 years. And in the midst of all of those details and discussions and controversies over details of the end times, it can be easy to lose the, the focus, the center, the core of what eschatology is all about. At the end of the day, eschatology is all about that song. Eschatology is the Christian answer to the problem that Bono presents. The, the words that come off, off his lips in that song. He is expressing um, a, a cry of the heart that I think every self-aware post-adolescent human being who's ever lived on the planet has uttered. No matter how far he runs, no matter how hard he climbs, no matter how much he tries, he still hasn't found what he's looking for. And then towards the end of the song, he talks about what seems to be some kind of conversion experience. You loose the bonds, you broke the chains, you have delivered me from my shame, and yet I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's the problem that all human beings can, can share in. Whether you're a believer or not, you look at this world full of pain and suffering, broken relationships, things that don't work, and we cry out, we still have not found what we're looking for, no matter how hard we work. No matter what kind of education you get, no matter what great career you get and how many hours you put in and how hard you work and how hard you struggle and how hard you try, at the end of the day, I think we would all agree we still haven't found what we're looking for. And, and ultimately, that, that doesn't change when I believe the gospel. When I believe the gospel, my sins are forgiven, now I have eternal life with God. That is great, but now that I believe the gospel, I still haven't found what I'm looking for because I still sin. 
I still do stupid things and I still suffer and I still see pain and brokenness and and despair throughout this world. And so even as a believer, I cry out, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's what the whole world, all human beings can share in common is that you get to an age after adolescence and you realize no matter what I do, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And that is the problem that eschatology seeks to answer. Eschatology isn't about a lot of debates and controversies and dates and details. It's about God's solution to the problem that when we look around, we realize, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. This world is not working right. This world is not satisfying me. This world is not what I hoped it would be. And God says, yep, but it's okay. Look what I've got coming. That's what eschatology is. It's a solution to the problem the entire human world faces. We live on a world that's broken and rife with pain. God's going to fix it. So that's the basis. I just want to take us back to that for a moment because, um, again, I like you too, and I've always been looking for an opportunity to show you too uh, in, this, in this room. Um, but more than that, I just wanted to take us back for a moment and give us some perspective. It's so easy to lose that perspective in all the debates over eschatology. At the end of the day, it's about the fact that God is going to give us the world we've been looking for. God is going to make all things right. He's going to fix everything that's broken. He's going to cure all pain, all destruction, all, all despair, He's going to give us the world we've been looking for. So that's the big idea. Um, With that big idea in mind, we do want to look at some of the details this evening. My subject is going to be the Millennial Kingdom, but I thought um, maybe we're not ready to jump into that yet because maybe you have some lingering questions from previous weeks. And so I just wanted to open the floor and and do my best to answer them. Um, I, I am going to confess to you guys that of all my theological knowledge and subjects I've studied, I feel like eschatology is the weakest for me. Um, part of that is just because eschatology is hard. Um, there are a lot of passages that you guys have been studying the last few weeks that I have studied and studied and studied, and I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I still haven't got it figured out. It's hard stuff. Um, some of those passages I study, I study, I study, and I just decide, you know what? I'll know when I get there. <laughs> We're gonna, we'll see what's going to happen, and we'll figure it out then, and so I'm going to quit worrying about it. So some of them I'm just going to have to tell you I don't know. I hope you're okay with that, but I will answer what I can, and some of you were kind enough to give me some questions, so let me see what I can do with some of these um, for just a minute. We'll take a, a few questions now, and then throughout I'll stop for questions. You, again, raise your hand or just call out a question. At the end, we'll try to do some questions, so I want to make sure you guys have some time for some discussion this evening, who knows, maybe I'll have some questions for you guys too, um, just to keep it, you know, keep you awake. Uh, <laughs> one of the questions I got, let's just start here, because this one's a good one. Matthew 24, I'm guessing probably you looked at that last week. It's a classic rapture, or a classic tribulation passage. Um, it talks about there will be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes in diverse places. And great questions. Um, is this passage applicable to prior to the rapture? There have been a lot of strong earthquakes lately in diverse places. Or is this prior to the second coming? Excellent question. Um, there's an interesting balance in eschatology. Um, God tells us a lot about what's coming. And so our tendency, our tendency is to look at the things that God says are coming in world history and then open the newspaper and say, this is that. This is that, this is that, this is that. Or maybe this is that, maybe this is that. That's our tendency. This is that kind of interpretation. We want to connect world events with the prophecies of scripture. Um, I I don't think that that's a bad thing to, to think about and consider, but we got to remember that While giving us those details, even as Jesus gave us those details in Matthew 24, a little bit later, 
20, Matthew 24, verse 42, he said, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Um, That last verse is what I always want to say to the guys who try to set a date for like the rapture, the end of the world. If If you think you know when he's coming, I can guarantee you he's not coming that day. Because he said, I'm coming at a time you do not expect. So um, whenever we try to connect, okay, I see these events in the newspaper. Is this lining up with, with, with prophecy? Um, I, I'm always hesitant to do that. I'm always a little reserved because Jesus said, even you who are my disciples, who know me really well and study my word really deeply, I'm coming at a time you don't expect. And so the application is be ready at all times. Um, I think that the Lord knew that if we could put together this with that, that it would call it, well, okay, things aren't together enough. I don't have to worry about it now. He says, no, I I don't want you doing a lot of this is that kind of thing. Don't worry about that. Just know it could be um, before this evening finishes. Before we're done, Jesus could come back. There is nothing that has to happen between this moment, right as I'm speaking, and the rapture. That's what we call the rapture is imminent. It could happen at any second, at any time, just like that. We believe in an imminent rapture. Now, um, the question does bring up a good point. Uh, is Jesus here telling us, well, well, maybe, okay, the rapture could happen at any moment, but before the second coming, there will be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes. I, I think maybe so. Maybe some of what Jesus is talking about is during the tribulation. Maybe some is before the rapture. Um, maybe some is actually even right after Jesus ascended into heaven, the temporal judgments that came upon the nation of Israel. Matthew 24, 25, those are really hard chapters because Jesus does this interesting thing um, where he talks about lots of future events and just weaves them all together. It's really interesting. um, BJ, are you able to, I have a a slide that has a picture of some mountains. Can you, it's a hand-drawn thing. Can you throw that up there? I'll have him put this up. Um, Maybe this will be helpful as we go through tonight. Jesus does something here that uh, we have to have in mind. Here it is. This is my little attempt to (laughs) draw. I'm not a good drawer. I'm not a good artist. Um, but I, I, I tried to do that th- this, this afternoon because it's helpful as you study Jesus on eschatology. It's helpful also. We're going to look at some Old Testament prophets. Um, and, and the deal is this, as God revealed to the prophet, the guy standing there, um, what the future held, um, it's like you're standing in Kansas and you're looking west and you see the Rocky Mountains and if you're looking at the Rocky Mountains, you really, maybe you see one peak. And, and so, you know, you, you drive that way and, and you get into Colorado and, and you keep going west. And at some point you realize, wow, what looked like just one big thing is actually a couple things. And, and then you get over the first mountain and you realize, oh my gosh, I didn't even see. Actually, I was looking at two peaks and there's like 20 miles between them. And, and as you drive into the mountain range, you see, okay, what looked like one big thing is actually multiple. It's actually drawn out. I didn't see the space in between. And so as you read the Old Testament, you you have to remember these prophets in the Old Testament, God was typically giving them the Kansas view of the Rocky Mountains. Standing in Kansas and all all he sees is the future kingdom. That's why Old Testament passages about the kingdom are always tricky because it's the kingdom. Well, what phase of the kingdom? The first coming of Christ, the church age, the tribulation period, the millennial kingdom, the eternal state. 
the kingdom. And so it's, it's kind of tricky. It's kind of hard. It's difficult to know which, which goes with which. Um, to some extent, we're just going to have to get there and find out what exactly lines up. But the Old Testament prophets just did that. Now, Jesus understood all of it because he's God. But, but even though he understood it all, he still revealed it as one big peak. And so in Matthew 24... Jesus um, is answering his disciples. His disciples are basically asking what's going to happen, what's coming in the future. And Jesus just lays it out. Here's the future, one big mountain peak. And as time has progressed, we've realized in that chapter, Jesus was actually interweaving some things that happened around 70 AD. The, the temporal destruction of that generation of Israel with some things that will happen during the tribulation, with some things that will happen at the second coming of Christ, with some things that will happen at the great white throne judgment at the end of time. All these different mountain peaks he just wove together. Okay, so um, in that chapter, as you're trying to understand that chapter and, and flesh it out, um, my, my basic answer is, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to tell what goes with what and when exactly those wars and rumors of wars are going to be, probably during the tribulation. The key answer to your question is, um, for sure, the rapture is such that it's imminent. It could happen at any moment, no matter what stories are in the newspaper. When you see things about earthquakes, what I tell myself is, um, well, it, it would make sense if it happened now. Of course, if I didn't know about that earthquake, it, it could still happen because it could happen at any moment. Okay, so rapture is imminent. There's nothing that needs to happen before it. Oh, I'm, I don't know that one. Uh, <laughs> is it our? Oh, stance. That's the word. Okay. Is it our stance that deceased Christians are in heaven or simply nowhere? That's a great question. Um, for, for where people are right now, personal eschatology, where does somebody go right now? Um, best place to go is Philippians, uh, end of chapter one of Philippians. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. Um, end of Philippians chapter one, uh, around verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful label for me, for I do not know which to choose, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Um, so Paul gives the idea to, to depart is to be with Christ. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ. Um, death is gain. To die is to be with Jesus. So our stance is that when, the, when a person dies, um, they're immediately with Jesus, but minus a body. Okay, so um, we believe that when you die, life gets better for you because sin is gone. The limitations and degeneration of your body is, is at an end and your spirit, your immaterial self is with God in, in, in his presence, in the presence of Jesus. Um, so that's if, if you have um, believing relatives who passed away, they're with Jesus right now, but they're not yet body, bodily. They don't have their bodies because the resurrection hasn't happened yet. When do they get their bodies? Do you guys know? At the rapture. Okay, that's what happens at the rapture. That's why the rapture is really great, um, especially for our relatives who've died. Because uh, at the rapture, they get their bodies back. Just in an instant, it's, uh, let's say the rapture happens tonight, which would be awesome. Um, the, the rapture happens. Um, we who al- are alive and believers, we're going to get to go up there, but we don't go first. It's, it's our, our, our dead relatives, dead brothers and sisters in Christ are instantaneously resurrected and join Jesus in the clouds. And then we join them and we are resurrected without dying, which is actually, that's why it would be cool to happen tonight because 
I'd love to skip the whole death part. So some generation of people gets to do that. Skip the whole death part, just instant resurrection. So um, believers who have died are with Jesus at this moment. They have potentially already gone through his judgment seat, the judgment seat of Christ. Um, It seems like maybe that happens pretty quickly when you're with Jesus. I I don't know though, don't know for sure. Um, Life is great for them. They're really joyous and conscious and um, worshiping and all of that kind of stuff. But life will get much better for them. Because we were designed to have a body. And so they're, they're, as Paul says, um, to be without your resurrected body is, is to be naked. You got no sin, you got no pain, no suffering, but you're naked and you really, you want to have your body. So um, that's where they are. Will Christians suffer through the tribulation? Um, yes, but not us. By our view, now, now this is a contentious issue. I'm sure they probably laid out multiple views of the rapture for you guys. Um, Figuring out where the rapture fits in the tribulation is a hard one, and I don't have a strong opinion on that. A couple verses make me think it happens first. So, okay. Um, Seems like the rapture happens first, and so we'll we'll work with that view, because that seems like the most likely. In that case, all believers who are alive now, if the rapture happens tonight, we're off this planet. So we do not suffer through the tribulation. That's actually one of the primary reasons we hold to a pre-trib rapture, is because there's passages that talk about how the church will be spared from the wrath to come kind of code words for the tribulation. So we will miss it. Um, but once the church is removed from the earth, everybody, all human beings left on the earth are unbelievers. Because if they were believers, they would have gotten raptured, right? So um, it's all unbelievers, but God's still at work. And so immediately, very quickly within the tribulation period, people are coming to faith. And as they come to faith and, and become Christians, they, they get the Holy Spirit, they get the new covenant, all of that great stuff, but they also, yes, get persecution. So will Christians be persecuted and suffer during the tribulation? Yes, but not church-age Christians because we're all out of here. It's new Christians, people who have come to faith during the tribulation period, of which there will be a a, a um, innumerable multitude, massive multitude of, of Gentiles and Jews. I, I'm sure you studied last week. Lots of Gentiles, lots of Jews coming the whole time. Well, lots of Gentiles and some Jews as the tribulation progresses, but then the tribulation gets worse and worse and worse for the Jews. And then what happens right at the end of the tribulation? All Israel is saved. Remember Romans 11. Okay, we studied that back in main services this semester. Paul reveals a mystery to us. When the time of the Gentiles is complete, then all Israel will be saved. Uh, you guys looked at Daniel 9, the point of Daniel 9. When will righteousness be restored to the nation of Israel? When will the Israelites be back under God's blessing? When will they be reunited and reconciled with God? At the end of the tribulation. The pain of the tribulation is designed to redeem Israel. That's kind of the Tribulation sounds really bad and um, <laughs> that it's bad for many people, but there's a good purpose behind the seven-year tribulation. It presses and crushes Israel to the point where finally they have no choice but to bow the knee and believe in their Messiah. Yes? Say all Israel will be saved. Would you expound upon that? Um, sure, Chip. Yeah, uh, to the best that I can. There's not a, a lot of details there. Uh, Romans... Chapter 11 um, is where we get the very short passage about it. Um, I'm going to assume you guys have uh, some familiar with Romans 9 through 11. Paul is asking and answering the question. Um, in, in Romans 1 through 8, Paul has proven that God is faithful. Okay, God, you are righteous. You are faithful. And then the intelligent Jew in his audience is going to raise his hand and say, uh, I object um, Paul, you say that God is always righteous, always keeps his promises, always faithful. What about me? 
What about my people? What about Israel? We are separated from God. It looks like God is unfaithful. And so Paul, Romans 9 through 11, proves no, God is faithful. He is keeping his promises. He lays out multiple arguments, which I don't have time to get into. But in 11, his point is basically the future is coming. And when the future comes, God is going to literally fulfill all of his promises to the nation of Israel. We'll talk more about that tonight because that's going to ultimately happen in the millennial kingdom. But as Paul talks about these future, uh, this future fulfillment of God's promises, you might notice uh, verse 25, for I do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery, mystery meaning something that has not been revealed in the past. So this is new information that Paul's about to reveal so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel and to the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul is talking about what's going on right now. Um, the nation of Israel is hard towards the gospel. Just some of the statistics, um, the, the vast majority of Jews are not Christians. You, you probably know that. There are some Messianic Jews, Jews who, who hold to Jesus, who believe in Meshua Jesus, but uh, it's a very tiny, tiny little fraction. The majority of Jews are actually, you may not know this, the majority of Jews are actually not Jewish. What is the religion of the majority of Jews? Atheism, actually. Like 60, 70% of, of Jews don't believe in God anymore. Um, the Holocaust kind of broke most of them of that, of that faith in God. So the vast majority of Israel right now is hardened. God is using that time of hardening upon the nation of Israel to extend the gospel to us Gentiles. Maybe there are some, of, some Jews in here, but most of us are Gentiles. So we're being blessed. Because Israel's being hardened, the gospel's going to us. The gospel's going to us, why? So that as we're blessed through the gospel, Israel will eventually be made jealous of us. That's kind of the goal. God is gonna bless us with peace and spiritual fruit in our lives, not necessarily material blessing, but spiritual blessing to make his own people, Israel, jealous. So right now, Israel's hardened so the gospel can go to us so we can make the Jews jealous. And then the the punchline where this is really going, verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. So um, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so, or and at that point, all Israel will be saved just as is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So he's quoting the new covenant here. Um, prophecies about what God is going to do for Israel in the future. And he says that right now we're in this time when Israel is hardened so the gospel can go to the Gentiles. But at some point in the future, the last Gentile will be saved. Last Gentile before like the millennial kingdom and end time stuff. Um, But at some point in the tribulation period, the last Gentile will be saved. And at that point, when God is done with the Gentiles, the nation of Israel will wake up. I think it's going to be partly through all the suffering and pain that they're in the midst of. They're going to wake up and think, um, we have seen a group of people on this planet that clearly have God's blessing. God watches over them. God gives them peace even when they're suffering and dying. Um, it's the Christians. And, and we really want what they have. And guess what? Um, it's, it's one of us, a Jew named Jesus, who gave it to them. We're going to believe in him. We're going to bow the knee and receive what he offers, the gospel. And all Israel will be saved. And uh, to get back to Chip's question, they're, they're, we don't know. When he says all Israel will be saved, do you mean literally every single Israelite on the planet at that time? Or do you mean um, all Israel as a nation? Overall, the, the kingdom of Israel will be saved. We don't know, um, to be honest. Uh, in, in my study of it, there's nothing to, to say one way or the other for sure. Um, 
My personal feeling probably just because I like the answer better is that it's going to be every single Jew. I, I, I just, feels right to me. Um, all Israel without exception is kind of how I take that, that literally God will work such that every genetic Jew on the planet will wake up and weep over the, the Messiah they crucified and be saved. And that, I don't know if you know, that is the end of the tribulation. We'll look at that here in a little bit, but that's really the, the, the end of it. All Israel is saved they all look to their Messiah, and guess what? He's there. He's coming down from heaven, and we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. But um, it seems like that's how it ends, all, all Jews coming to faith. Could be wrong. Could be just overall, the vast majority, nation as a whole. Good question. Yes? Yes, the 144,000 um, are basically uh, Jews who are um, saved, and God specially chooses them to be witnesses to the world during the tribulation period. Um, if I am remembering right, and, and again, this is my, my weak suit, but I think those 144,000 who are believing Jews are going to particularly go to the Gentile nations during the tribulation period. The people who God sends particularly to the nation of Israel are those two witnesses in the book of Revelation who we really don't know a lot about, but they're going to be in Jerusalem doing signs and miracles and the inhabitants of Jerusalem are going to put them to death. So still the Jews are not cool with, with Jesus at that point. Um, they put them to death, but then they're going to come back to life and um, that's going to be part of what God uses to draw them. So the 144,000 and the, and the two um, are, are tribulation era believers that God is using in miraculous ways to draw many people to salvation. So that's the amazing thing. We think of the tribulation as all bad news. But there's actually a lot of people coming to Christ during the tribulation. A whole lot of people are coming to Christ. Many of them are dying very shortly thereafter, unfortunately, because of the world system that will be in place at that time. But many are believing. It's good questions. <laughs> uh, this is a, a Daniel question. Daniel 9 and the weeks and seven sevens and all that. Um, oh boy, that's a big one. Um, let me see what I can do there real quick. Uh, don't have a lot of time for Daniel tonight, but if you're welcome to turn there. So, looked at Daniel 9 last week, I would assume. Um, Daniel 9 is very significant in our understanding of what's coming. Um, it, it lays out uh, incredibly accurate information of things that have already happened in the past. So it, it has a lot of validity to it, a lot of uh, clear fulfillment of most of it. And then it gives us some information about what's happening in the future. And because so much of it has been fulfilled so clearly, it really compels us to believe in what's coming uh, at the end of Daniel 9. So very intriguing passage. Um, unfortunately, it's very difficult to interpret. So uh, it's, it's a, a little bit of a mixed bag with it. Um, Daniel 9, I'm guessing you guys looked at it last week and, and saw that the basic question of Daniel 9, Daniel asked God how long? God, how long will it be until you restore Israel? And he uses a bunch, of, a, a bunch of related questions, but the big idea is how long till you get back to us? How long till you restore us to what we were meant to be as a, a kingdom of righteous priests who are a blessing to the whole world? And um, God sends an angelic messenger and he gives this answer starting in verse 24. Um, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So um, basically, to summarize that, uh, Daniel, 70 weeks have been decreed before everything you hope will be fulfilled. 
Everything you want for your people, the end of sin, the restoration of everything, your people reconciled to God, 70 weeks. Now, in the English Bible, it says 70 weeks. In the Hebrew, it just says 77s. So 70 units of seven. Um, And so you wrestle with, well, what is a seven? (laughs) I have 70 of them, whatever a seven is. And so do I have seven days? Do I have seven months? Um, Do I have seven years? What is it? And you begin to look at it and wrestle with it. And and as you study some of the ancient context, it seems like the the easiest and best answer is is, uh, years. So I have 70 units of seven years each. Um, if that is what is in view, which I think is the most natural interpretation, it fits perfectly what it says about the arrival of Jesus. Um, I don't know. Did you guys go through the math last week? Okay, you did. Good. So you saw that. Um, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So seven and 62, why does he divide those into two groups? I don't know. Um, I've seen various uh, guesses, but don't know. 69 weeks total. Um, and then it will be built again, the Jerusalem, with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, which 7 plus 62, um, the Messiah will be cut off. Okay, Messiah is mentioned, and, and you saw the math. After 69 units of seven years each from the proclamation to rebuild, which happened in history, well, that is basically like March 30th, AD 33, which is when Jesus marched into Jerusalem and in the triumphal entry. It's, it lines up remarkably well. Now, again, it's, it's hard to, was that exactly the day that Jesus showed up? We think, but um, you can't turn back to a calendar and, and see that it happened on that day. Hard to tell all the details, but it would appear that it lines up absolutely perfect with the arrival and coronation of Jesus. That's what the triumphal entry is. I'm the king, coronate me. They say no, but that's, that's what's going on there. He arrives, but as Daniel uh, heard, um, in, in the moment that he arrives as Messiah, as king, he will be cut off. Um, so then af- uh, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined and he, this, this leader, this prince will make a firm covenant with the many for one week but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Again, literal week doesn't make any sense. You're not gonna make a covenant and three days later break it. You couldn't even pull that off. So seven years makes the best sense here. Week means a seven, which means seven years. In the middle of it, he'll, he'll he, at the beginning of it, he's gonna make a covenant with the Israelites. So Antichrist is probably the prince here. He's gonna make a covenant with the Israelites of peace. In the middle of the tribulation, he's gonna break it. Um, and at that point, he's gonna put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, um, even until a complete destruction, the Antichrist will wipe out his enemies, will wipe out the nation of Israel. One that is decreed is poured, and, until um, a, a destruction that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate, until the Antichrist meets his, his end. Um, how do we justify that there were all these years, who knows how many, 2,000 roughly so far, between 69 weeks and the final week? That's a classic question, really good question. How do we justify that? Um, the first thing I do is point people actually, again, to this picture. Daniel is being given a picture of the Rocky Mountains from Kansas. So all the weeks are in succession, just one big group of 70 weeks. Daniel was living way before these events. Um, in hindsight, we're now living in the Rockies, in the middle of the mountains. We see 69 weeks are over here and one week is over there. We actually don't know how far it's going to be to get till we get to that one last week. So Daniel was before. That's why he doesn't tell us that there's a break there. Um, I think also you, you often see 
the Old Testament lays out uh, the expectation that the Messiah is going to come. And if they would have received their king, blessing would have come immediately. Um, They reject Jesus. And so there's a pause to this plan. Um, God was bringing blessing through the Messiah. They say no. And so God hits, in some senses, the pause button with the nation of Israel. We don't know how long that pause button is going to be down until it's time to be done with the Gentiles and get back to his plan of restoring Israel. So that's the basis of why we think that that there's that pause because um, as best we can tell, there has been a pause. Um, Jesus came, he was cut off exactly when Daniel said he would um, and then destruction did come upon the city uh, about... uh, 40 years later, AD 70, the city's wiped out as punishment for their rejection of Jesus. Um, and we're still in this period when, when Israel is hardened and lost. Um, they are in their sin. And we're still waiting for that day when this prince will make a covenant with them that will then be interrupted and then he will be destroyed. There's nothing that's happened in the past that we can look at and say, that's been fulfilled. So um, we see a pause because that is what has happened. It's our best understanding of it so far. So complicated passage though, tough one. Um, that's most of the questions that were up here, at least the ones that I felt like I had some hope of answering. Um, other questions you guys have, and then we'll jump in. Just feeling all right about where you are so far? Okay, let's jump in. Let's cover a little bit of this stuff. I'm going to try to make sure to give you guys a break um, in a little while. Try not to wear you out. Um, and, and again, if you have questions as we go, just please stop me. Let's see. If you want to, you can turn to Revelation. We're going to start in Revelation 19 tonight. Here's the picture you've seen. Um, we've been talking about all these details as we've gone through tonight. Uh, we're in the church age, waiting for the rapture, great tribulation, return of Christ, millennial kingdom, great white throne, new heavens and new earth and eternity. That's the big picture of eschatology, kind of the big uh, overall idea of what's going on. Now, actually, the way that this lays out, the way that these events lay out, particularly what I've been assigned tonight, the millennial kingdom, we get the details of kind of that progression from the end of the book of Revelation. So I want to spend just a few minutes with you guys kind of overviewing what is going to happen um, from Revelation 19 to uh, Revelation 21, where Buck will pick up next week. Um, So if you want to turn to Revelation 19, let's just overview the events real fast. We'll come back to some of this later. Tribulation, let's see, let me put up this. So make some sense of this. Uh, the tribulation really occupies the vast majority of the book of Revelation. From chapter 6 through 18, it's all awful news. Um, bad stuff going on, wrath being poured out. 6 through 18 is the great tribulation. So the majority of the book of Revelation is just about seven years of world history, real, real short amount of time. Um, but as chapter 18 comes to an end, we are transported to heaven for the first part of chapter 19. There's this marriage of the, of the church and, and, and Christ. Um, there's this uh, hallelujah chorus to Jesus. And then in the middle of chapter 19, Jesus comes back. So let's look at that. This is what kicks off the end of the tribulation. Um, and fitting this in with Paul, what has happened is all of Israel has finally embraced their Messiah. They have wept over the one whom they crucified. And so boom, that's it. That's what he was waiting for. Pick it up in verse 11. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men. And the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Uh, pause. Let's pause there for a second. It's just setting the scene. Uh, imagine a movie where you just spent the first hour of the movie just setting up for this big battle. That's, that's what's going on here. So um, you have on the side of the earth, on the side of sinful humanity, you have all of the armies of the earth. And when we combine the information we get here with other information in Revelation and in the Old Testament, as best we can tell, uh, what has happened is that the Antichrist leading the armies of his realm um, are uh, joining in battle um, or about to go to war with the kings of the east, whoever that is. I don't have a clue. Um, But the kings of the east have a massive army. The Antichrist has a massive army. Um, Antichrist is coming from the west. Kings of the east are coming from the east. Where are they going to meet? Israel is where everybody has met for all of time. That's the middle of the world. Uh, It's actually the plain of Armageddon. So they're meeting for the battle of Armageddon with a capital A, the battle of battles, Antichrist and the kings of the West and the kings of the East meeting on this plane with, it would appear, hundreds of millions of troops. Who knows what armaments and weapons at that time in world history. The, all the military power of the earth is meeting on the plane of Armageddon for one final match to see who will control the world. Will it be the Antichrist or will it be the kings of the East? But lo and behold, they're about to go to war and what do they see? They see a guy on a white horse. I don't know where he is. Somehow Messiah shows up. Sign of the Son of Man. They see the Messiah. They see Jesus on a white horse. Um, He looks glorious, um, but he's on a horse. I I don't really see them being very scared of what they see at first, at least. It's a guy on a horse, and they've got hundreds of millions with tanks and planes and nuclear bombs and who knows what else at that point. And so they face off against this one guy on a white horse descending from heaven. Um, And he comes and and, and lands on the the plain of of Armageddon. It's in Israel today. Uh, He lands in the middle of this massive valley with hundreds of millions of troops around him about to wage war. And if you've read Revelation, you know that not only is it human troops around him, but demonic troops because the the forces of of sinful humanity at this point are indwelt by demons. And so you've got just this massive, um, uncountable army about to face off with one guy. Um, you're there. I don't know if you caught that. The armies of heaven, that's probably us. We're, we're riding on white horses. But we don't actually come down to earth. We're just chilling out. We're, we're up there watching um, on our horses, not really doing anything. Um, so that's the battle. We've set everything up. Uh, an uncountable army versus one guy on a horse. Verse 20, the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, but which he deceived... Uh, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed by the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It is the most anticlimactic battle that's ever happened. You would not make a movie out of this because you'd spend an hour getting everybody into place and it's over in about two seconds. Um, again, you're there, armies of heaven, you're there, the angels are there, Jesus has who knows how many, but he doesn't let us do anything. You're, you're just watching, is, is all you're doing from the horse. Everything is done by what? By the sword from his mouth, which sword in scripture, sword of the mouth, means a word. He doesn't have a sword, he has his speech. All Jesus does is say some word, maybe a phrase, just says it, 
It's not anything special about that word or that phrase. It's the guy who's saying it that matters. He says some word and hundreds of millions of people are dead. In an instant, it's over. He doesn't have to hit them. He doesn't have to do anything magic to them. Just boom, they're dead. They're dead and every demon that was animating them is instantly bound into the abyss. Satan himself is is crushed and bound into the abyss simply by one word from the mouth of, of the king. So it's... It's the, again, most boring battle that's ever happened. It's just over. One second he says one word, boom, everybody's dead. All evil is wiped out from the planet. All these, um, all who were aligning themselves against the Christ are wiped out and the world population is now a lot less and who's left on the planet? Which is believers. Just those folks who were hiding in caves because they didn't want to be killed by all those armies gathering together. All the unbelievers are dead. Um, They're food for birds Jesus is now here and and we enter into the the next phase, Uh, chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming, let's see, Uh, there we go, millennial kingdom. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who's the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand and they had come to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. We'll pause there. So uh, you hear a thousand years, a thousand years, repeated multiple times. This is actually the only passage where we get that idea. That Jesus comes and there's something that happens for a thousand years. So this is the one and only passage, but it says that multiple times, so probably is, a thousand years. Um, Jesus is reigning. Um, People, believers, people who are faithful are are somehow reigning with him. He's reigning over the earth. And during this time, uh, Satan is bound. So Satan is removed from the earth. That's what we call the millennial kingdom. And we'll come back to this and talk more about it later this evening, some of the details about it. After that, we have another completely anticlimactic battle. Verse seven, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore and they come on the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who was deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne. A great white throne judgment, which I uh, believe Buck is going to pick up with next week. We enter into the great white throne and the new heavens and new earth. Okay, so uh, the millennial kingdom ends with another just epic fail of a battle. Satan tries to deceive the nations to lead um, during the millennial kingdom. We'll talk about this more later, but there are unbelievers. He leads them out of the closet and into rebellion against Jesus, their Messiah, um, and fire comes from heaven. They're just all dead. Who knows how many with who knows what weapons and they're just all wiped out. And and that's the end. And then God shows up and and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But God shows up, wipes everything out and we have the great white throne, which is where God, the father, the almighty judge sits on the throne and evaluates people. And, And probably we're not there. Probably we're not being evaluated at that point. I think believers are not included in the great white throne, but that's hard to tell for sure. We're okay if we're there because our names are in the book of life. So we get to heaven. Everybody whose name is not in the book of life gets judged by another book, a book of works. 
And that book demonstrates that their works did not meet the bar. What's the bar? If you're not in the book of life and you want to get to heaven in the book of works, how good do you have to be? Perfect. Well, no one measures up. So everyone is shown to have failed and all who have failed are, are sent to where Satan is. They wanted to be part of Satan's kingdom, whether they admitted it or not. And so they're where he is, which is the lake of fire. Um, again, Buck will talk more about that next week. So that's what's coming in the future. Let's see. Let's do a little bit more and then we will take a break. Um, let me walk you guys through something real quick. A lot of people think that our eschatology, our understanding of the future, is based on the book of Revelation primarily. Or maybe Daniel and that crazy complicated thing that we looked at. Or maybe Matthew 24. That, that's, where they, that's where our view of the end times is coming from. Well, that's actually not true. Um, the book of Revelation and Jesus and Matthew and, and Daniel, they, they give us some details to understand some of the finer nuances of what's coming in the future. But our basic eschatology, our basic understanding of what God's going to do in the future particularly with the millennial kingdom, that whole frame of time, um, where does that come from? Actually comes from the Old Testament. Actually comes way towards the beginning of the Old Testament. Comes from the covenants. The covenants. I don't know if you guys have ever had a chance to go through our His Story study. His Story is 10 lessons through God's story in Scripture. Uh, The funny thing about doing an eschatology talk in the summer, where all we're doing is eschatology, is in God's story, eschatology is chapter 10. It's the end. It's the end. And and you would never open a book and and read the last chapter and set it down. You wouldn't understand the last chapter. It would not have any significance to you. You would read the first chapter. You would start there and and work your way from the left to the right of the book. And, And we have to make sure that we do that. Eschatology is interesting, but we have to remember eschatology is to the right of my Bible. I have to start with the left of my Bible because that's going to build the foundation upon which my eschatology stands. My understanding of the future is totally based on the past. What God has said what God has promised, what God has done. That's why I hold to the eschatology that I do. So if you guys have never grabbed our His Story Packet, it's free on our website. Just go download it. Uh, You could kind of work through it a little bit on your own this summer if you're looking for something devotional or something to do to take you deeper into the Word of God. Um, If you have questions that come from it, um, you can email Buck. Um, and he will, <laughs> no, you can email me, you can email any of us. We'd love to talk to you about his story. That's actually my, my favorite study that we do. So love to have you guys go through his story because our understanding of the end times is not based on revelation. It is based on God's overall story in scripture. What is the Bible about? What is God doing in human history? Revelation is just the end of the story. It's the final minute of the movie. What is the movie of history about? Well, the big idea of human history So God desires to glorify himself by establishing his kingdom on earth through human representation. That is what your Bible is about from Genesis to Revelation. God's desire to glorify himself by building his kingdom on this rock called earth through human beings. Not through angels, but through us, through human beings. That's God's intent. That's what's behind Genesis 1 and 2. But then we get Genesis 3. What happens in Genesis 3? The human representatives blow it. We can't represent God because we're not holy. We sin. We fall into sin. God, though, does not give up on us. In grace, God begins a program of restoring his human representatives so that we can get back to his business, which is to establish his kingdom on earth for the end of his glory. 
to his glory. And so how is God gonna redeem us? How is God gonna fix us, his image bearers, his representatives on earth? He's gonna do it through the biblical covenants, the four covenants. I'm just gonna walk you through these super fast. We don't have much time for this tonight, but again, this is what eschatology is based on. Not revelation, but on the biblical covenants. God makes four big covenants in the Old Testament that are the foundation of everything that God wants to do with human beings. How's he gonna fix our problem? Well, he's gonna show up to a man named Abraham. And he's gonna make some radical promises to Abraham. He's gonna promise Abraham, uh, you can't probably see that real well, sorry about that, I should have made that bigger. About 2000 BC, so about 4,000 years ago, God shows up to a man named Abraham, not because Abraham was worthy, but because God is gracious. And he promises to Abraham, I'm gonna give you land, big piece of land from the Nile River to the Euphrates, from the Mediterranean to the Arabian Desert. You will have all of that land forever. I'm gonna give you descendants, countless descendants. Who are, who are Abraham's descendants? It's the Jewish people particularly. That's, that's who ends up being the particular descendants of the covenant. And I'm going to give you blessing, physical blessing, spiritual blessing, and the greatest blessing of all, through you, Abraham, I will bless the whole world. Through you, I promise to fix what human beings have broken. Okay, so that's the Abrahamic covenant that makes this grand promise through Abraham to fix everything. After the Abrahamic, 500 years later, God shows up to a guy named Moses. And we're not going to talk a lot about the Mosaic covenant because it's not in effect anymore. God gave Moses the law at Mount Sinai to regulate life for the nation of Israel so that they could experience the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant in their lifetimes and they blew it over and over again. They got the cursed side of the covenant instead of the blessing side of the covenant and so God wanted to set that one aside. He's gonna replace it. Next covenant that comes along is the Davidic. About 1000 BC, God shows up to a king named David and promises him a house. A house is just a fancy biblical way of saying a family. Your line is never gonna die out. You're gonna have a guy forever. Um, You are going to have a throne, which is a fancy biblical way of saying authority. You will get to be king. Your, Your descendants will get to be king. And you will have a kingdom. You will have a nation, the nation of Israel, to rule over. Okay, so David will have house, throne, and kingdom. And then finally, God replaces the Mosaic covenant with the new covenant. New covenant, about 500 BC. It is promised in the Old Testament, but doesn't become active until Jesus dies on the cross. It promises the spiritual and physical restoration that are required to enjoy all of the covenant promises. So together, the Abrahamic, now the Mosaic set aside. So Abrahamic, Davidic, and new are God's plan for fixing everything. Everything that we have broken, God is gonna fix through these covenants. And so when you wanna ask, well, what is coming in the future? What is gonna happen in the future of this planet? The place to start is to say, what has God promised? In the biblical covenants, these bedrock legal documents between God and the human race, particularly the nation of Israel, what has God promised? And of those promises, what has he not fulfilled? If he's a faithful God, then whatever is not fulfilled is still coming. So that's the basis of my eschatology. Whatever he hasn't done, he's gonna do. That's what's coming in the future. So here's uh, a a quick list of of what's promised and what's coming. Of the Abrahamic covenant, land, descendants, spiritual and physical blessings. Um, They've got the descendants. There's lots of Jews on on the planet right now. Um, They don't have the land. They've never had the land. They have never had the boundaries of the promised land, Nile to Euphrates, Mediterranean to Arabian Peninsula. Current nation of Israel is nowhere close um, to the land that God promised. And of spiritual and physical blessings, they have some, but not many. Even the gospel that we enjoy, most Jews don't have yet because they're still in rebellion. So that one's not happened for the descendants of Abraham yet. They're not enjoying God's blessing yet. So we need land, we need spiritual and physical blessings. Out of the Davidic covenant, uh, we've got a house, Remember, house meant descendant. Well, you got the best descendant ever. 
You got Jesus and he's never gonna die. So uh, de facto, your family's never gonna die because you have the eternal guy in your family. So um, you have the eternal king, Jesus, um, and he sits on, or he has authority. He has a throne. He is the one who is king. He's been crowned king, but he doesn't yet have the kingdom he's ruling over. Because why? Because the kingdom has said no. The Israelites don't want him yet. And, and he, now he could force his way on him, but he's not gonna do that yet. He's gonna wait till they're ready to bow the knee. So uh, we have identified the king, He has the authority to rule, but he's not yet exercising that authority because his people are still in rebellion. He's gonna give a little more time until he comes back and fixes that. That's the Davidic and what's left. Out of the new, the majority of this is left. Majority of the new covenant is still not fulfilled. We actually just have what Paul calls the the first fruits, the foretaste, just the, the taste on our lips of the new covenant. We've not really eaten it yet. So much still to come. We have forgiveness. Now, that's no small thing. That's, that's awesome. We finally have forgiveness of sins. The new covenant made it possible through Christ's blood. His blood has made remission of sin possible. Um, we have a little of the Holy Spirit, which is why it's blue there. It's not a, a check or an X. Um, you don't actually have the new covenant Holy Spirit. We'll look at a passage a little later this evening. When you have the, the Holy Spirit in, in full, you will perfectly obey. Holy Spirit in full in you is God in you fully. You will not be able to resist his, his compulsions. You, you will perfectly obey when you have the Holy Spirit. Right now, you just have what Paul calls the first fruits of the Spirit. He's leading you if you'll listen, but you don't have him fully yet. Um, so we have the down payment of the Holy Spirit, but we don't have a new heart yet. New heart is gonna perfectly obey and love to obey, and, and that's not me. Partly I wanna do that, but I still have a lot of desires that are not righteous. So I don't have a new heart yet. Um, he has not yet restored Israel. We don't have prosperity for Israel and for the world. We don't yet have world peace. All of these things that are promised in the new covenant that we'll look at a little bit later this evening. But the new covenant lays out for us. The Abrahamic, Davidic, and new covenant tell us, they lay out for us that, man, there's a lot to come in the future. There's a lot that God has to do in the future. And the place where God is gonna do it is a millennial kingdom. That's the millennial kingdom. That's, that's the essence of what I wanna share with you guys tonight. The essence, the reason that there is a millennial kingdom is because God has to keep his word. And he made a whole lot of really big promises in the Old Testament. And those big promises will be fulfilled in the thousand year rule of Christ on earth. That's when Israel will have the land. That's when they will have prosperity and blessing. Christ will rule on the throne in Jerusalem over Israel. Everything that God has promised in the covenants will finally come true in the millennial kingdom. So again, basis for our understanding what's happening in the future is not the book of Revelation. It's the biblical covenants. You gotta start there. That builds the foundation because that's what God has promised. God is faithful. So that's what we still expect to happen in the future. Let me hit pause there. Let's take a break for, um, is this thing go to 8.45 tonight? Is that? Okay. Um, Let's hit pause um, until, for 10 minutes. Let's take 10 minutes, get a drink, um, get, uh, oh, if they have coffee, whatever they have for you. (laughs) Have a break. Am I, am I on? There we go. Okay, if you guys want to come on in, we'll get started. I'm getting a lot of great questions, so I want to see if I can leave time to get to these. Um, uh, if, if there's questions I don't get to tonight, you're welcome to come talk to me afterwards. I'll stick around as long as people want to talk. Um, and also, you can email me uh, or call me up, and, and I can talk to you about some of this stuff. If it is a question about Gog and Magog, I have no idea. I got that one over the break. <laughs> I haven't got a clue. So don't, don't, uh, don't email me about that one. Okay, let's see. Uh, you have seen this picture before. Let's talk a little more detail about the Millennial Kingdom. Millennial Kingdom, 
Uh, we're going to turn to some passages. Uh, I've ended up spending more time on questions than I expected, which has been really fun. So we'll fly through a few of these things. Um, uh, I don't have a handout. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't have time to put that together. But you guys can write these down and go back and, and read some of them uh, at your at your leisure. Um, let's look at some of the nature of the millennial kingdom. Let's spend a few minutes doing that. This may answer some questions that are always out there, kind of lingering about the millennial kingdom. Um, what is the nature of the millennial kingdom? How does it work? Uh, let me just give you guys some characteristics of it. The millennial kingdom is not a democracy. The millennial kingdom is a theocracy. It's actually an interesting reflection on the nature of politics and political theory. Democracy is not the best possible way to govern the human race. It's just the best possible that is available to us right now. Best possible is to have God govern us, and that's the millennial kingdom. God is on the throne. It's a theocracy. God is in charge. Uh, if you want to flip in your Bibles real quick, we'll just look at this if, uh, for just a second. Daniel 7, classic passage people go to. Let me just read this to you. Don't, don't even bother turning to Daniel. Turn to Isaiah, Isaiah 11 while I'm reading Daniel to you. Daniel 7, uh, Daniel has a vision. I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Interestingly, Jesus is gonna use that title of himself, son of man. He's saying, I'm the guy. Daniel 7's about me. Um, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days who is God, the Holy Father, and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So the millennial kingdom is the beginning of the eternal reign of the Messiah. So Jesus is still going to be reigning in the new heavens and new earth. Buck will talk about that next week. But the millennium is the beginning of it. Theocracy. Jesus rules. Um, So he rules over all the earth. And we get a sense of how he rules in Isaiah 11. Uh, Just read with me the first five verses. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked, also the righteous, also righteousness, will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. So it is a perfect theocracy. Righteousness is, is perfect. It is instant. Um, there is a passage in Zechariah about how when, when someone sins during the millennial kingdom, which will happen, and, and we'll talk about that in a minute, um, how that happens. But when there's sin in the millennial kingdom, uh, it has to be closet sin. You, you sin in a way that no one knows about. Because if you sin openly... If you do something bad, like murder or steal or theft or extortion or rape or something like that, you die. You die pretty fast, maybe instantly, because Jesus is in charge and Jesus sees all and knows all. He's the perfect judge. There's not trials. There's no lawyers. There's no need. Jesus knows everything. He just executes perfect justice instantly. It's done. And so uh, in in Isaiah, it talks about how uh, during the millennial kingdom, righteousness will spring up like grass. Everywhere, you'll just, everywhere will be covered with righteousness. The whole planet, perfect righteousness. Finally, there will be no, uh, no extortion, no slavery, no uh, evil anywhere on earth. It will be perfectly judged in an instant because Jesus is ruling on his throne. So it's a theocracy. Jesus is in charge. Um, now, who are these people and, and how is it that we have um, sin during the millennial kingdom? The millennial kingdom is a very interesting mix of people. 
Uh, it's different than what's going on today because the millennial kingdom has both resurrected folks and mortal folks. Three groups of people populate the millennial kingdom. There's us, those who are resurrected. Those who have believed during the church age, maybe including Old Testament saints, I don't know, but for sure us, um, we are resurrected and we come with Jesus. Remember when he first comes, we're just hanging out up in the sky and he does his thing. And then we, we come with him and now we're on the earth now that he's wiped out all, all unbelievers upon the earth. We're with him on the earth and we rule with him. Um, uh, Revelation 2, you don't have to turn there because it's very short, but Revelation 2 is one passage that talks about that. Um, Jesus says, "He to believers, to us, those of us who overcome and who keep my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. Jesus is saying, if you overcome in this life, if you keep my deeds, in other words, if you live a faithful life, then not only do you get your sins forgiven and get eternal life, which is awesome, but you also get to share in my authority. That's what we believe about the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment seat of Christ is just for believers. If you've been faithful in this life, then not only do you get eternal life, but you get the reward of ruling with Jesus. You share in his authority in the millennial kingdom. We, we believe this is millennial kingdom because it talks about smashing vessels with a rod of iron. That's figurative for people who are evil, you're gonna wipe them out. There's no evil people in the new heavens and the new earth. So this has gotta be about the millennial kingdom. You'll be there with Jesus, ruling over the earth, if you're faithful now. If you're not, I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you're chilling out and and just don't have any work to do, but you're hanging out on the earth. Maybe you're in heaven, not participating in the kingdom. I I don't know. Um, But it is definitely incentive for faithfulness. Now, if you're faithful in this life, you get to rule with Jesus in his kingdom, his millennial kingdom. So we're there. Resurrected faithful Christians are basically governors of the earth. So you have Jesus ruling from the throne in Jerusalem. Um, He could do it all. He's Jesus, um, but he likes to delegate authority. That's the kind of thing God likes to do, share authority. And so he shares authority with us and we do stuff on the earth and rule over the nations of the earth because the nations are still full of mortal people. By mortal, I mean they've never died yet. They've not been resurrected. They're still in the same body you are, a fallen body that will grow old and die. Um, they're mortals and that not only does that mean that they have a mortal fallen body, but it also means they still have a sin nature. And so I was talking to somebody about this earlier during the break. At the beginning of the millennial kingdom, there's resurrected Christians and there's mortal Christians and that's it. Basically, the the end of the tribulation period, all unbelievers are killed. There's a bunch of believers who are Jew and Gentile. They enter into the kingdom and they've never died. So they're still gonna die at some point. They're mortal, so they have babies. We we won't, we'll be resurrected after resurrection that you don't do that anymore. But uh, those who have not died, they'll still have babies like we do. And those babies will have a sin nature just like we do. And so those babies will have to make a choice at some point. Will I believe in Jesus as Messiah and trust him or will I not? Now, the decision looks a little different for them. The choice looks a little different because they can look at the guy. I I don't really know why anyone would say no. It's kind of proof that sin is really deceptive because there will be people during the millennial kingdom who can look at Jesus and say, I don't want that. Um, For whatever reason, pride, I guess. Um, Pride and the deceitfulness of sin. They'll say, I don't want that. Now, again, if they say, I don't want that, that doesn't mean that they just get to go live in a moral life. Because if you live an outwardly immoral life, you die. There's passages in the Old Testament that talk about parents stoning their children. It's a horrible thought, but the picture is, if a person chooses to reject the Messiah and then walk in sin, do wicked, evil things, all of us will say that person needs to be removed from this planet. 
They, they have rejected Jesus and, and, and he is bringing righteousness and the consequence of their sin is death. And so um, if they are an outward rebel, they will die. So all sin during the millennial kingdom will be closeted. You'll do it in your closet when no one's looking. You don't want anybody to know about your sin. It'll primarily be in the mind. You will reject Jesus but not want anybody to know that because that's, that's not information you want to share. But because of the deceitfulness of sin, there will still be people who reject. So there'll be mortal believers and mortal unbelievers. Now the mortal believers, let's look at that passage, very significant passage, Ezekiel 36. Turn there. Ezekiel 36 is a new covenant passage. It tells us about what God is going to do, what he has promised to do in the new covenant. And like we said earlier, the new covenant was promised a long time ago. It began when Jesus died on the cross, but we only enjoy a little bit of it now, just the foretaste of it. When it comes in full during the millennial kingdom, here's what life will be like. Look with me at chapter 36, starting in verse 23. This is God speaking. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. When the new covenant is here fully, you have the, the Holy Spirit in full. You have a new heart, your heart of flesh, which I think is synonymous for the idea of your sin nature is actually removed. So these people haven't died yet and yet their sin nature is gone. It's awesome. I don't know how God makes that happen, but somehow he removes their propensity, their bent towards sin. It's gone. Now his Holy Spirit is in them and as a result, what does it say? I will cause you to walk in my statutes. You, you will perfectly obey. In other words, the millennial kingdom, salvation will work just like we really wish it worked now. When you accept Jesus as your savior, you never want to sin again. You're done with that. Now you perfectly obey. Now they're still mortal, so their bodies are still decaying because the, the fall, Genesis 3, still has effects. So they're growing old. They're, 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 they probably, it would look like, or it looks like from prophecy, they probably live a long time. Jesus brings such blessing to the earth, maybe medical advances as well, that we live a long time. Uh, we don't suffer as much as we do now, but the body still decays, yet they perfectly obey. They perfectly obey. In fact, uh, with the Holy Spirit in them, Jeremiah 31 talks about how you won't even need teachers anymore. You won't have, I won't have a job in the millennial kingdom like this. You won't have preachers. You won't have seminary profs. So you won't need us. You will know the Lord God perfectly. You won't need an intermediary to teach you the word. You can just go talk to Jesus. Um, so I'll be fired. Um, and you guys will be able to just, people during the millennial kingdom will just immediately be able to know God and have an intimate relationship with him. Uh, okay, so we have mortal believers who perfectly obey, mortal unbelievers who are closet rebels till the end. Um, and we saw, we, we talked about the end. At the end, Satan is released. I uh, got a great question. Why does God release him? Had him in the abyss. Why not, you know, kind of beat him. Why not leave him there? Uh, God releases Satan for the same reason that God put a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. You ever thought why in the world did God do that? You, you got a paradise garden and it can always be a paradise garden. Just don't put the tree there. There's no tree, then you can't sin. If there was no tree, then there would be nothing to distinguish us from a dog or a cat or any other animal life because we would have no opportunity to make a choice. 
What makes you in the image of God? Your ability to reflect God's glory by making godly choices. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just like Satan getting out of the abyss, is grace. God giving human beings the grace to be like God and make a choice. To make a choice to follow God. To make a moral choice. Only humans get to do that. Angels don't even get to do that anymore. They got to do it at one time. Follow Satan or follow God. They all made their choice. Now they don't get to make choices anymore. That's done for them. We get to make choices. That's what makes us God's kingdom representatives because we can make choices like he does. And so Satan will be released so that this human population can once again make a choice. Will they obey or not? So Satan is released and at that point, that's when mortal unbelievers come out of the closet and join in with Satan and launch a final desperate attack against Jesus um, and all die in an instant. Mixed population, perfect world peace. Isaiah 2, I'll just read this to you. Great passage, beautiful, beautiful passage. Um, Worth flagging in your Bible if you don't have it. It will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up a sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Beautiful passage, especially the last sentence. Probably about the millennial kingdom because there are swords there to make into plowshares. New heavens and new earth, everything material gets wiped out and remade. So there's no swords that enter. There's no weapons that get into the new heavens and new earth. There's weapons here. So it's probably the millennial kingdom. Basically, there is such peace on earth that no one learns how to be a soldier anymore. And everything that used to be a weapon is turned into a farming instrument. I think that's a metaphor for something that you produce good stuff with. Everything on earth is used for good ends because Jesus is in charge. So there's perfect, perfect world peace during this time. And finally, there is this final, complete restoration and prosperity for Israel. Everything that was promised, uh, look again at Ezekiel 36, second half of the chapter, everything that was promised in the covenants finally comes true for the nation of Israel. So we looked at the first half of 36, which was about their spiritual restoration. The second half of chapter 36 or of this passage talks about their physical restoration. If you're looking with me at chapter 36, look at verse 29. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanliness and I will call for the grain and multiply it and I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Uh, Skip down to verse 33. Thus says the Lord, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. The waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. In other words, Israel's fixed. They were fixed spiritually at the beginning of the chapter. Now the second half of the chapter says you'll be fixed materially as well. Um, Your nation will be prosperous. In fact, so prosperous, we find out in other passages that the prosperity of Israel overflows to the entire world. There's no famine on the planet. Finally, no poverty, 
no hunger, no starvation. All of that's taken care of. There is complete blessing. There's no infertility on the planet. There is a reduction of disease on the planet. There's just incredible prosperity and material blessing on the planet Earth because finally things are working. I think you don't have a complete removal of the curse. That's not coming till the new heavens and the new Earth. But you do have Jesus pushing back the curse. And so the Earth is working better. There is greater harmony between man and creation. Our relationship to the Earth is better, is more like, Ezekiel says, the Garden of Eden. Basically, we're going back to the Garden finally when we get to the Millennial Kingdom. So those are just a few of the characteristics. Uh, Isaiah 61, I won't go there just for lack of time, but you can read that yourselves. Isaiah 61, great passage, a beautiful passage about what God is going to do for Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. Um, I got a lot of questions. I really want to take questions, but um, I want to make sure that I use uh, just a, a few minutes, and then I'll come back to questions. But I have some questions about this. Um, let's pause on our questions about the details of the millennial kingdom, and I just want to make sure that we ask the most important question: um, So what? I don't know what brought you here tonight, but I think um, people who are not Christians would ask us, "Why are you here?" <laughs> Why are you here talking about something that you will not live to see? Maybe you'll die and rise from the dead and then you'll get to see it. But why are you talking about this? Why are you here debating details of the book of Revelation? Really? What, why are you here? What's the value of eschatology? You're living in the real world now. You're not living in some dream world called the millennial kingdom. You're living here and now. So why do you care about what's going to happen? Who knows how far in the future? Why do you care? What is the point of eschatology to your daily life? Does, does eschatology have any impact? Should it affect how you live? Should it affect your, your behavior? Should it affect your priorities and, and goals in life? Should it affect how you spend your money? Should it affect your political views? How should eschatology affect you? Another way to look at it, the, the second question there, would your life right now today, here in College Station 2012, would your life be any different if you didn't know anything about eschatology other than the basics of the gospel, that if you believe in Jesus, you will live forever with God? If that is all that God had revealed, he gives you John three sixteen, but he doesn't give you anything else about the future. Would your life be any different? What does any of this matter to our daily lives? I don't know if you've thought about that before, if you've wrestled with that. That's hopefully why you're here is because you think that this has some implication upon your daily life. Otherwise, it's just theoretical um, and you're just in a seminary class and that's not really worthwhile. Hopefully, it has some implications. Let me give you what implications I see in it. This is what eschatology means to Blake. Um, you probably would, would add things to this, some, some things that God has done for you through eschatology. First thing that eschatology, first answer to the so what for me is that eschatology, my study of eschatology, particularly rooted in the covenants of the Old Testament, proves to me that I can trust my God. It proves to me that I can trust my God. Eschatology, especially as I see it in Daniel and in Matthew and in Revelation, it walks me through the details of how God is gonna keep promises he made in the Old Testament that seem absolutely impossible right now. All of Israel being saved, really? Seriously, they're mostly atheists right now. Seriously? Yes. Eschatology shows me how. The world finally restored and blessed, famine removed, suffering. Really? Man, we work awfully hard to remove poverty. 
We work awfully hard to fight against famine and disease and warfare, and we aren't very good at it. We're not getting anywhere. Really, you're going to take care of all that? Yes. Eschatology shows me how. Eschatology shows me that I can trust my God. And if I can trust my God to take care of Israel, then I can trust my God to take care of me. That's Paul's argument in Romans 9 through 11. The fundamental question, can God be trusted? What about Israel, Paul? Yes, God can be trusted. He's gonna take care of Israel and that's proof that he'll take care of you. So um, eschatology, the more I study it, the more it gives me trust in God, that I can depend upon him. Very significant to me. Uh, Second, when I study eschatology, um, especially the millennial kingdom, to me, it is proof of my culpability before God. And um, I don't know if you've ever, millennial kingdom, all these details about this 1,000 year kingdom. I don't know if you've ever asked really the most important question. uh, Why is there a millennial kingdom? Jesus, you've returned. Let's get on with heaven. Really, come on, let's, let's finish this thing. New heavens and new earth, everything that you talk about that you guys will study next week. You read about the new heavens and new earth, it sounds awfully nice. It sounds brilliant. Let's get on with that. Why are you not gonna do that for a thousand years? Why are you gonna continue to let this broken world continue to exist? Why are you gonna let human beings still make bad decisions and hurt themselves and other people? Why is there a millennial kingdom? Because the millennial kingdom is proof positive that we are culpable, that we are responsible. Think about it. Millennial kingdom is, is a test with perfect conditions. In the millennial kingdom, human beings will be born who have none of the disadvantages you do. They don't live in a broken world. They don't suffer. They don't have to exercise faith in Jesus. You realize that? Because Jesus is right there. I don't have to believe in somebody I can't see. I can look at him. I can talk to him. I can see his power as he does all these crazy miracles. It's not really a faith thing. It's more of a submission thing. Do I want to humble myself and trust in him as my savior, depending upon him, or do I want to do it on my own? Do I want to be my own boss, my own man? The millennial kingdom will have unbelievers, and the fact that the millennial kingdom will have unbelievers proves to us that the human race is culpable, that we are blind in sin and foolish and evil at heart. Because even when all circumstances are perfect, still we will give in to sin. It's sad. I mean, that's not happy news, but it does prove our culpability because without the millennial kingdom, maybe you could imagine some unbeliever standing before God saying, God, it's not fair. You put me in this place over here where conditions were not very friendly to me. It was hard. I suffered Um, I grew up in a place that was not full of the light of the church and and life was awful. I suffered, things were horrible. That's why I did not believe and God can say, uh, look at the millennial kingdom. Millennial kingdom, I gave everybody the absolutely perfect circumstances and still they made the same choice you did. No, it's not about circumstances. It's about the fact that in the core of your heart, you rebelled. You didn't want me. And so I gave you your choice. You don't have to have me for all eternity. So millennial kingdom proves our culpability before God. Um, Millennial kingdom motivates obedience through fear. I want to remind you of of a a couple things here. Millennial kingdom is interesting because it's bookended with with two, uh, I I call them, I don't know if you're familiar with it, THX moments. Do you know what THX is? For those of you old enough to know you too that I put on earlier, THX is what used to be at the beginning of your movies in really high class theaters. 
THX is that moment when they dim the lights, everything goes black, and they pound you with sound. And, and so much sound that um, your eyes are, are back, and you're back in your seat, and the hair on the back of your neck is up, and you're not thinking about anything else except, my gosh, please let the sound in, because there's so much of it. It's just so loud. Um, well, there's these THX moments at the beginning and end of the Millennial Kingdom. We looked at one of them. Jesus shows up and he faces off against an army that numbers in the hundreds of millions with every sophisticated weapon human beings can ever come up with and he speaks a word and they all die. Their weapons fall useless to the ground because they're all dead. That's a THX moment, pretty, pretty amazing. Um, but actually there's a bigger THX moment. I didn't read it to you because I was saving it. Um, Revelation 21, um, Buck will get to next week. Let me turn there. I'll just read this to you. You don't have to turn there. Uh, Actually, Revelation 20, um, end of the millennial kingdom, we read about how Satan leads everybody up and fire falls down and wipes them out. And then a great white throne. um, And and this is where I left off. Then then I saw a great white throne. This is after Satan and, and the rebels during the millennial kingdom are wiped out with fire. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. I don't know if you've ever paused at the end of that sentence and thought about what that means. Heaven and earth fled away because no place was left found for them. What happens is for the first time in the history of the universe, God shows up. He opens the door from wherever heaven is, however heaven works. God opens the door and he shows up in our universe. And when God the Father shows up in our universe, what happens to the universe? It disintegrates. Every galaxy and every solar system and every star and every planet and every asteroid and every molecule and every atom instantaneously disintegrates. It's just the whole universe is annihilated just because the guy shows up. He doesn't even speak a word. Jesus spoke. He doesn't even speak. He doesn't do anything. He just shows up. And the radiance and majesty coming off of God the Father annihilates everything in the universe. Just boom, boof, gone. I read that read what Jesus did. I read what God the Father does. And it reminds me when I'm in my more lucid moments that when I am thinking about giving into this temptation, right here, I'm thinking about giving into this temptation, I am thinking of disobeying those guys. I'm thinking of disobeying the son who's going to show up and then with a word out of his mouth, he's going to put to death all of the rebels in the human race. Just a word, boom, all dead. And I'm worse, I'm thinking of disobeying his dad. Um, who is dad, if he just shows up right now, the entire universe, which is incomprehensible to understand its size, would simply disintegrate in his presence. Those are the guys I'm going to disobey, seriously. And, and when I think about that, eschatology gives me perspective. My gosh, how foolish is sin? These are the guys. I don't see them yet. I see the effects of them upon my universe, but I don't see them yet. I take it on faith that when they show up, that's what they're going to do. Really, sin is a bad idea when you said your eschatology. Think about the fact that one day I'll be saved, so I'm going to get to spend eternity with them. I know that. That's taken care of. But one day I'm going to stand in front of them. I'm going to give an account of my life to them. I'm going to tell them this is what I was thinking. This is what I was doing. I'm going to give an account of my life to them. And I think about that and it sobers me. Really? I'm I'm going to give into this temptation so that I get to explain it to that guy? That's what I'm about to do now? So eschatology gives us healthy fear. You may have thought about that. Fear is not inherently bad. There's bad fear terror, things that uh, lead to shame and guilt and sin and hopelessness. But there's also good fear. Good fear that puts you on your knees in obedience because you realize, dang, that guy's big. I'm not going to get on his bad side. I'm not going to disobey him. The guy who he shows up and the whole universe disintegrates. So it gives me fear. Finally, it gives me hope. The millennial kingdom is a solution to Bono's problem. 
What you 2 was singing about, Bono's talking about, I've run, I've strived, I've climbed, I have done all these things. It would appear I have even embraced the gospel and I still haven't found the world that I was looking for. No, you haven't, but it's coming. It's called the millennial kingdom. It's when God fulfills all of his promises, when God fixes everything that's broken, when God solves all of the world's problems once and for all, you're not gonna find it here. Through all of your educational advancements, through all of your charitable giving, through all of your work in Africa and everywhere else, you're not gonna make it here. That's good stuff that you do, but you're not gonna make the world what you've been looking for. It's not gonna be what you've been looking for until Jesus comes back. That, that actually has big implications on your charitable giving, on the ministries and things that you serve with. If all you're doing is taking care of people's physical needs, that's an endless cycle that's gonna get nowhere. So you can't fix physical problems until Jesus comes back. So you give them the gospel. That's where your focus should be because the gospel ensures that they get to be there when the millennial kingdom comes and finally we will find what we've been looking for. Okay, so that's the big idea. That's what I wanted to cover tonight. Just give you guys a sense of why this matters and how it fits in. My time is up. You've given me lots of questions. You're welcome to come talk to me afterwards um, and we can talk about any of those questions. Um, but in my uh, rush to put you two up, I realized I didn't start with prayer. So we're gonna do the Jewish thing and end with prayer. They often do that at their, at their stuff. So let me pray for us. And then again, if you want to, great questions you guys ask. Sorry, I didn't have time to get to all of them. You can come ask me and we'll talk about it afterwards. Lord, thank you for this evening and this chance for us to talk about what you have planned in the future. Father, it's easy to get caught up in the details and lose the fact that the the basic idea of eschatology is that Jesus is coming back and he will fix everything that's wrong and fulfill everything that you have promised. And we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that you would, um, through that news, give us hope, Lord. We pray that as we study eschatology, that it would have a practical impact on our lives, Lord, that it would not just be an academic thing or a curiosity to us, Lord, but that it would change how we behave to think about the fact that we are one day going to have to give account of ourselves um, to Jesus and to God the Father, to, to you who will show up and, and, and wipe out the universe by your mere presence. We have to give an account of our lives to you, Lord. I pray that that would motivate us to obey you. Um, I pray also that knowing the future would give us hope that as we suffer and as we're in pain in this life, Lord, that we would have hope in the future, um, that a world is coming that will be perfected, that will be everything that we've been hoping for. Um, we thank you, Lord, that that is something we get to look forward to. And I pray finally, Lord, that as we think about the future, that it would motivate us to share our faith with our neighbors, with our friends, with our family who don't yet know you, Lord. Um, Father, we want them to be there with us. We want to um, not miss them, Lord. We want them to not miss the the beauty and fulfillment of everything that you have promised. Um, And so, Father, I pray that you would give us a renewed passion to share our faith, Lord, to um, share the, the, the one message that can deliver them from your wrath, from, from the torments of hell and, and welcome them into your kingdom, into your family and into the, the blessings of the kingdom. I pray, Father, that we would be faithful to share the gospel as we think about eschatology. Thank you, Father, for all you've done. Thank you that you're with us. Um, thank you that you're here right now and that you watch over and protect us. We pray that you would be with us this week, all for the glory of your son. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.